Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear David Drake. I'll be honest, I don't really care. I accidentally came already when you touched my hand earlier. So, <laughs> balls in your court. That and more. But before that, I want to give a little shout out to some of our newest Patreon members. Rosalind Juster, The Mugs, Timothy Black, Hannah Christine, Marie Louise Obst, Megan Willison, and Edwin Ho. We are so, so grateful to our Patreon members. I'll tell you, a month ago, we were really, you know, I mean, we were knuckling down and saying, can we keep this thing going for a whole other year? You know, how long can we really last? Now we're we're feeling like, okay, you know, there's been like this uptick in Patreon support, and we're really hoping it continues uh, because... It could truly assure <laughs> that we're here to stay for a few more years. Just speaking personally, just as me, I have to say, <laughs> I've always been grateful for this podcast. I've always been like, it saved my life back in 2009. But now, you know, in this era of 2020, after I meditate, Every day, I repeat out loud how grateful I am for this podcast because, look, there's so many things that are vying for our attention right now. So much bad news, so much, uh, you know, stressful stuff pulling us in this, that, and the other direction that it's incredibly good for my own sanity to be listening to stories where people calm down, sit down, really kind of work their way through their thoughts and feelings from a place of compassion, from a place of wanting to have an effect on other human beings, wanting to connect, wanting to kind of show a way to transcend this or that kind of circumstance. It's just very helpful to be able to turn back to the podcast, not just as my job, but as a regular reminder of what it means to be human and how illuminating it is to be hearing from other human beings to remind ourselves and continue learning about our values and about our capacities because we're all needing to call upon all that humans are capable of to overcome to make it through this challenging moment we're living through and i feel like this podcast is one of those recharging places not just the podcast but also the live streams where we come together and refuel ourselves with all of the best of what it means to be human. So if you agree with me about all that, if you've experienced that too, please help keep risk running by becoming a patron of ours over at Patreon. It's at patreon.com slash risk. Or if you want to make a one-time donation to us, go to paypal.me slash risk show. And this week I'm going to be recording a conversation with Wes Hazard, a member of our team who was featured on last week's episode. And that's going to be on Patreon soon. I'm going to record another check-in, just myself, how I'm doing. That'll be there soon too. So lots to get over there at patreon.com slash risk. Now, here's the show.
Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Jimi Hendrix. Behind me now, and we're calling this week's episode At Odds. People who thought they were going down a particular road with other people in their lives and then found that that was not quite the case. I feel like right now that's how a lot of us feel about the United States of America. Guys, as you know, we have a very engaged community over at the Risk Podcast Fans discussion group on Facebook. And this weekend, I asked a question over there, and I'm really inspired to see people interacting about it. I asked Risk fans over there, how are you staying active in standing up for democracy and justice right now? Is there a particular organization that you meet with or donate to? Is there a type of volunteering that you find especially inspiring? How do you find out about whatever protests or rallies or community Zoom events are happening near you? What activist leaders do you follow on social media? Are there podcasts or other kinds of media that give you good guidance on staying engaged and active? Have you been inspired to discover some method of pitching in, like sending letters or making food for people that you'd never knew you'd be so jazzed about doing? Do you have resources to recommend to others about how to protest safely and effectively? I love for everyone to kind of be putting their brains and hearts together around this. Come on over to the Risk Podcast Fans Discussion Group and tell us about it. I want us to be a community resource for one another in that way. Even if you want to just be honest and come over there and say something like, I got a, I got a cop to it. I've been too scared to go out marching in the streets. Or I've been too overwhelmed about having just lost my job and looking for new work in order to focus as much as I would like on volunteering. Let's be talking about this together. We cannot remain silent about what's going on right now. You know, in Portland, unidentified federal agents are kidnapping protesters at gunpoint off the streets, throwing them in the back of unmarked rental minivans. They won't say what authority they answer to. They have no badges. They read no Miranda rights. Today it happened in Ohio, too. That is what happens in dictatorships. That guy, Greg Doucette, on Twitter, now has videos of almost 800, 800, I was about to say 400, no, 800 separate incidents of police brutality caught on video since George Floyd's murder. And meanwhile, a third of Americans were unable to pay their rent or mortgage last month. 5.4 million just lost their health insurance. 17 million Americans have been purged by Republicans from the voting rolls. That's millions of people having their right to vote taken away from them in just two years time that many the big republican project there the whole party is on board for shutting down people's ability to vote and of course 142,000 americans have died from covid and now the white house is ordering hospitals to stop reporting that data to the center for disease control so that only the white house will know the real numbers so we don't have the option of being silent or being inactive. And remember, there is so much joy and hope and love and inspiration to be found in coming together to stand up for what we love and believe in, equality, justice, democracy. We are living through a period in history where decades from now, people will say, what did you do? in that absolutely crucial time. So I would love it if we all, as the risk community, could brainstorm together on how to help one another do all that we can do. We can think outside the box even. I love the risk community. 
And I know that Risk fans have the empathy, the compassion, the soul for looking out for other human beings. You know, I keep thinking of the Stevie Wonder song that says, love is in need of love today. Well, let's bring it. Let's bring it. Meanwhile, we are going to keep doing what we do. We are going to keep laughing and keep having our heart warming and inspiring, sometimes scary, sometimes uh, what the fuck-ish stories. We're going to keep sharing about our real life experiences here and go through all the emotions together. Let's lighten things up now. This is mostly a fun and kind of lighthearted episode, mostly. In a little bit, we're going to hear a story that Michelle Carlo told recently at one of our live streams. Before that, we're going to hear an anecdote, one of those little mini stories that a Risk listener named Brian Joint sent in to us. And before that, we're going to have David Drake back on the show. This is a story that David told at Caveat back before we had to stop doing shows in theaters. Uh, you can find David at daviddrakecomedy.com. Here he is now with a story we call American Pie. happy to be here. I want to start by saying I'm not an old man. Don't even try to convince me that I am. I am not. But I am starting to develop kind of old man tendencies, you know, like uh, I'm starting to look back on my past and think things that were bad were good. You know how old men will do that? Just like, ah, things were better when I was... It's like, oh yeah? <laughs> World War II was better than the cell phone? Okay. <laughs> Grandpa, sure. But I am starting to develop whatever that is. Where I was taking a run the other day, and uh, I thought back in high school, and I, I smiled. I was like, ah, oh, I think that was fun. You guys remember being 15 when you, you looked horrible and you were forced to do math for no money? I was like, ah, oh, I think that was fun. Yeah. You're a slave to your parents. Yeah. <laughs> I remember, like, my parents, very strict growing up. They had a lot of boundaries, which I think is good. Like, parents should have boundaries. But I do find that, like, they do end up kind of backfiring most times. Like, my parents, they, they didn't let me decorate my room when I was growing up. And uh, now I'm 32. I'm married. And uh, every part of my body is like, hey, you should uh, get that Bob Marley weed poster now. <laughs> do it right now. Other people my age are like buying furniture. I'm talking to my wife. I'm like, hey, uh, what if our doors were beads? Huh? That'd be fun. Consequences. Yeah. My parents say uh, they didn't let me have any uh, girls in my room until uh, well into my 20s, which seems reasonable. <laughs> but like when I was 16, I was the horniest I will ever be. It's like, just because you tell me I can't have a girl in the house, that doesn't mean I'm, I, I'm going to find girls. I want to find, every part of me is like, you got you to gotta get a girl. You know what I mean? So all that means by setting that boundary is that instead of bringing a girl to the safety of our home, I now have to bring them to either the car, the basement, or the woods, right? <laughs> when you're 16, whenever you want to, anywhere you, you can go immediately, it's always a place where you, a good murder would occur, you know? Just a car, basement, or woods. I would always choose, my number one choice was always car. I had whole dates that were just the car. You know, I'd be like, hey, I'll, I'll pick you up at seven. And she'd be like, ooh, where are we going? And I'd be like, that's it. <laughs> you get in the car. <laughs> I don't have money for gas, we'll sit in the car. <laughs> Until your parents ask you to get out of the car again. 
But sometimes my mother, she would get mad and she'd take away access to her car. And then I had to go with my second choice, which was basement. But we had an unfinished basement, so not great. So we'd always have to go to somebody else's basement. Uh, and sometimes that was unavailable, which forced me into option three, which was the woods. And uh, girls are naturally mistrustful of the woods. It's, it's very hard to convince girls to go to the woods. It's a hard sell to be like, hey, can you get your mom to drop you off at the woods? Yeah. No, it's not. Cre- I'm 16. It's uh, wherever a murder would occur. That's where we can go. All right. It's either the abandoned house on the hill or that place by the river where we found all those shotgun shells. It's, it's up to you. You know, I'll be honest. I don't really care. I accidentally came already when you touched my hand earlier. So <laughs> balls in your court, whatever you want to do. So I know that that's what my childhood was. I know that it was mostly just the woods. But like something about growing older has rose-colored glass that kind of just looks like the American Pie movie when I look back because that was the first movie I had seen that had showed and depicted sex in like a positive way. Before that, I had seen sex in film, but it was always like a negative experience, you know what I mean? Like, I saw Titanic in theaters with my dad, <laughs> and my dad had his hand on my shoulder when Jack started to paint Rose, and we were both so tense. I was like, oh, am I going to kiss my dad? <laughs> like, oh, don't move or you have to kiss dad. You know? Bad, negative experience. Yeah. The other movie I'd seen with sex was uh, I saw Terminator, And that's a movie where a guy sends his dad back in time to fuck his mom to create himself. And that's a lot to unpack as a 10-year-old boy. Uh, (laughs) I was like, I don't think I'd do it. I'd rather not exist. I don't want dad to do that to mom. Bad, negative. And then I saw American Pie. And that was fun. It's the first time I'd seen fun. And something about the funness of that movie took over what my very real memories should have been. Like, it just replaced kind of all of them. But I had no idea it happened until about, like, a couple weeks ago. I had no idea my (laughs) memories had been replaced, but I was on this porch smoking cigarettes with a bunch of my friends, and uh, one of my friends, he starts telling the story about his first blowjob, and we're all excited, because we're all in our mid-30s, and we're all married, and when you're in your mid-30s, married, like, there's nothing better than remembering, you know what I mean? Like, we all, (laughs) we love a good memory, right? It's not that now is bad, it's just now is just not as exciting as then, like, when I was single, I remember I, I would leave the house and anything could happen. I could end up in Paris, you know? <laughs> no one's ever invited me to Paris, but, like, I could. I could have left my house and ended up there. It's just that, that feeling like anything could happen, which was exciting. You know, now I'm married, and I, I know when I leave the house, I know exactly where I'm going at the end of the You know, I'm going to end up back at the house, right? That's... <laughs> There's no other eye. If I wake up in Paris, something horrible has happened. I've been taken to Paris. I'm naked, chained to a rate. My liver is gone. Where are my friends? Yeah. Why am I in Paris? No, what's going to happen is I'm going to leave the house. I'll probably return at a reasonable hour, probably with paper towels, maybe milk. Because that's what happens when I go out now. There's like a chore tacked on to the end of every time. Even on a super exciting night, I'm going to go do acid at a rave. My wife's like, ooh, is the rave by, like, a FedEx? I want you to mail this thing for my aunt. How are you making the rave suck already? Yes, I'll mail the package. Yeah. So we're all remembering. We're, we're enjoying the memory. And my friend, he's telling this first blowjob story. And we're all like, oh, we're all, like, horny and lustful. We're like, Yes. You know, we're all excited, and we're having fun, and at the end of the story, we're laughing and high-fiving, and we decide that we're all going to tell our first blowjob stories. And I'm so excited and and horny, and I was just like, I I want it to be me, 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 me. I want to tell my story. And everyone's like, oh, yeah, 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 tell us, yeah, tell us. And I'll be honest with you, I haven't really thought about my first blowjob in a long time. I don't, you know, so I'm kind of remembering it aloud to these people. Uh, I'm just like, all right, oh, great, my, my first blow, I was, I was 13, I was in the basement, choice two, uh, <laughs> with this girl, Jenny, we're just making out, and then Jenny is like, ooh, I think I want to give that a try, and I'm like, ooh, Jenny, you are <laughs> so cool, you're so cool, Jenny, I'm so happy that thought occurred to you organically, all on your own, have at it, and so she does, 
And just as she begins, uh, Home Improvement comes on the television. And there's something about Tim Allen's voice that just destroys whatever type of romantic moment you're trying to have. You know what I mean? Like, she's down there, and then I just hear the, you know, that like, somebody just totally takes me out of whatever moment is occurring, and I do not get hard. And so this girl's like, what's going on? And I'm like, oh my God, I don't know. I'm so sorry. We just have to turn off uh, Tim Allen. Uh, nothing else his body of work. It's just uh, he can't be here right now. So she's like, all right. And then I turn off Tim Allen. And then the basement is just dead, quiet. And you can hear hot human breath. And it's not like Tim Allen's out of my head. He's still up there, just, you know, like whatever shitty thing that he's trying to do. And this girl is confused. She's like, why, what's, why is this? I thought you were 13. I was like, I, I thought I was 13 too. Why, why is this happening? You're not a man. You're not drunk. You, know, you don't even drink. I'm like, I, don't, I, I think it's me. She thinks it's her. We both like just kind of feeling sad. And so eventually she gives up. And now we're just in the dark basement. It's quiet. We feel weird. We're not saying anything. And she's just like, oh, I, think, I think I'm just going to go home. And I was like, all right, I'll, uh, I'll walk you home. And uh, on the walk back, a car full of older teenage boys pulls over. And they start yelling aggressive sexual shit at Jenny. And I don't stand up for her uh, like I should. I was too much of a coward in the moment to stand up for her like I should have. You know, they're talking about her body and what they do to it and uh, how I wouldn't know what to do with it, which I just found out is true. You know, I'm like, God damn, <laughs> they're kind of hitting us both here, you know. Uh, and it's just this barrage of, of horrible shit. And then almost like they're laughing and then they're gone. They drive away, leaving me and Jenny alone. And there's a new silence. It's a heavy silence. It's like a bomb just kind of went off. And we're both just sad and confused and angry at each other. And uh, I think about that silence probably twice every 15 minutes. Yeah. So anyway, that's the story of my first blowjob. And everyone on the porch is like, what the fuck? Why did you tell that to us? We were having fun. You begged to tell us that? I was like, ah, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I just, I guess I, I guess I haven't really thought about it. You know? I guess it was kind of a sad story. And everyone's like, Jesus Christ. And we all just, everyone's just smoking cigarettes quietly. No one's saying anything. Just looking at each other like, motherfucker, damn Then after a long time, my friend Kevin, out of nowhere, is like, I was at my friend's birthday party. He had an older sister. She dragged me up into her bedroom. I wasn't emotionally prepared for what happened next. My parents, they came. They picked me up. I took a cold shower. I cried. I didn't touch another girl until I was 22 years old. Everyone's like, what is happening on the porch? <laughs> We were having fun. We turned to the one girl who was there like, was yours fun? She was like, no, I was, I was a child with a dick in my mouth. It was a fucking nightmare. Yeah. So I was like, fuck. So we just finished our cigarettes in quiet, and then we walked single file back into the party. And I don't know, I, like, I think American Pie should have to answer for that. You know what I mean? Like a bunch of like <laughs> grown adults are feeling awkward and weird on a porch. You know, that movie gaslit my entire generation. Like they need to come out with a new movie where they're all in their 40s and they're like, man, it's so great to get the gang back together. And then it's quiet for a while. And then out of nowhere, Stifler's just like, sometimes I just pull over my car and scream. <laughs> yeah. And then the movie ends. It's like a five minute movie. <laughs> I was like, I can't believe I paid full price for that. And then I'm in the back. Yeah, there's a price for it all. Uh, hey, thank you guys so much. Bye-bye. In the early 2000s, I was a server at TGI Fridays. Me and all my buddies there would hang out after work. We'd go get beers, BS just engage in harmless jackassery like young guys are known to do. One of my buddies at that time and a fellow server was a black guy named Will. Now, everybody liked Will. He was kind of quiet and shy, but he was funny. He always had a, a sly joke 
when you least expected it. I'd say he was very laid back and he just never seemed to get too worked up over anything. Just one of those guys you liked having around you. One night we were out looking for the party and we ended up stopping at this dive bar called the Crash Site. This was me and Will and two other guys. So we walk into this bar and the place is totally packed. There's guys playing pool, this blaring honky-tonk music, a thick blanket, a cigarette smoke hanging in the air. There was even a blonde waitress walking around and she would flash her tits to anybody who wanted to see. It was like Roadhouse, the movie with Patrick Swayze. But as soon as we stepped inside, it was like everything stopped. Just like, again, in a movie where everyone stops and looks at the outsider. We went in anyway and we found a table and we sat down. I'm not sitting there for one minute before I hear, hey son. I look around and I see the bartender. He's this giant lumberjack of a guy. He's got to be 6'5 and with a long black pirate beard. I realize that he's trying to get my attention. Hey son, come here, he says. So I walk up to the bar and immediately there's this sense of unreality about things going on. It's like deep down I know something's wrong, I can feel it. But I go up to this filthy ass bar top and the bartender has his finger out trying to get me to come in closer. So I lean in and he comes down close enough for me to smell just the dry ashtray of his breath. And he says, did you just bring a black man into a redneck bar? Only he didn't say black man, he said the N-word. And I said, what? I thought I hadn't heard him right. But he says, uh, you must have lost your mind, son. You just brought a black man into a redneck bar. And he had this grin on his face, like to where I could see the few remaining teeth in his mouth, but he wasn't joking. It wasn't a joking kind of grin. I could tell that he was serious as hell. He wasn't playing around. I feel like I must have been in shock because I said, uh, that's fine, we'll leave. But he says, uh, no, hold on, let me show you something. And he reaches down behind the bar and he comes out with an axe, a full-sized wood chopping axe. And as I'm standing there, he raises this axe over his head and cracks it down on the bar top. And he says, I'll cut that boy in half if you don't get him the fuck out of here. I turned around and walked back to the table and Will was there. He didn't hear the conversation, but he knew something was wrong. We all knew. And I said, we need to get out of here. And so we did, we left. And I told Will what the guy said in the car. I remember feeling embarrassed telling him, but Will was like, it's cool, don't worry about it. It was almost like he wasn't surprised. I got the impression this wasn't the first time he'd had to deal with something like this or even had heard something like this. I was pissed off, but I couldn't believe he wasn't more pissed off. But he was just like, don't worry about it. So we drove away and went somewhere else, but the night had been soured. I joined the military not long after that, and I lost touch with all those guys, including Will, but it's something that I've always remembered, and I wonder if it's something that Will remembers too, or if it was just another part of his day, just something that he was used to. Welcome to the virtual stage, Michelle Carlo. Hi, everybody. So I realized, I learned what hell was when I was five years old and I was with my grandmother, my abuela, in church. But this was not just any church. This was an Iglesia Pentecostal one of the storefront Christian churches that you often find in neighborhoods of color. But this was not just any Iglesia Pentecostal. This church was on the second floor above a vivero, which was a live poultry market. When you climbed up those stairs to the second floor, white chicken feathers would stick to the size of your shoes like angel wings. A soft clucking would accompany moments of silent prayer, and the smell of avian slaughter gave whole new meaning to sermons about the cleansing sangre de Jesucristo, the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ 
most of which these sermons and most of the service I didn't really understand because it was mostly in Spanish, which was a language five-year-old me didn't really know very well. And I wondered why my grandmother always brought me to church with her that year that I lived with her. And I began to think that maybe it was, she hoped that I would somehow atone for the sin of being a bilingual child. Now, these church services were totally different than what I'm sure most of you experienced if you were brought up going to church. Because for one thing, yes, there was always music, but this was not any moldy Catholic church like wish it was Hammond organ, okay? This was a full piece salsol orchestra. There were drums, congas, bongos, timbales, claves. There were guitars, electric guitars, and, and there were saxophones and trombones and, and trumpets. And it was like a whole thing. And it sounded like these were like really professional musicians. And yes, they were. They probably went straight to the church on Sunday morning from their Saturday night salsa gigs. And they played and they played and everybody you, you did tambourines or they had claves or they had, uh, triangles and they would stump their feet and clap their hands and go hallelujah Jesus and I have found this very fascinating because you know five-year-olds like to make noise so I just got up and started screaming you know whatever and the other thing that I loved about church is that my abuela was special now there were deacons in this church there were 12 of them because there's 12 apostles and each of the deacons had a different gift let's say a gift of the spirit like some People could speak in tongues, some people could interpret tongues, some people were healing. And my, my abuela was kind of like a curandera. Like if she would put her hands on you, she would pray and was probably in tongues because I didn't recognize it as English or Spanish or whatever. And she would pray for this person after she put their, her hands on their shoulder. And eventually the person she was praying for would start shaking. And then their eyes would roll back in their head and then they'd fall down on the floor, which meant that they were slain in the spirit, which meant that my abuela had done her job very well. She was very important in that church. And I remember on this one day, I'm walking with my abuela, you know, down the, in, in the aisle between the two rows of folding chairs and the, all the people that the whole congregation is nodding very respectfully at my abuela and they're smiling at me. And I go with my abuela to sit towards the front, like in the first two, three rows where all the deacons were sitting and where children weren't allowed to sit. So I knew I was very special. And then when one of the other deacons whose specialty was interpreting tongues, prophecy, handed me a tambourine and indicated to me that I could play too, I knew that I was just like special and this was going to be great. So when the music started, I started banging my tambourine in perfect three, four time. I started saying, otra vez, hallelujah, standing on the chair, stomping my feet. I'm five years old. I'm making noise. This is all great. Oh, and I forgot to add that there was another row of people towards the front, the row of nurses all wearing white, which I hadn't really ever seen in church before. But you know, I'm just banging the tambourine and having so much fun. I'm about to ask my grandmother if I could start coming to church with her on Wednesdays and Saturdays too. When all of a sudden, like the Red Sea, it seemed the congregation parted. And all of a sudden, there were two lines converging on the way to the pastor, who was standing there with a bottle of oil. It looked like oil. It smelled like oil. In fact, it kind of smelled like the oil that my grandmother used to fry her platanos in. So I was just like, oh, that's weird. But I'm watching because I'm fascinated because every single person that went up to the pastor, the pastor would pour some of the oil on the person's head. He'd put his hand, he'd start praying, and then that person would go over, boom, onto the floor and then be dragged off to the side of the room by one of the nurses that were wearing white that was sitting in the front row. Now, after a little while, I noticed that there were seven bodies on that side of the room. I mean, I may have only been five years old, but I could count. I was a smart kid. And I was like, hmm, maybe it's time for me to not be in this front of the room. But as I get up to try to sneak towards the back and look for my abuela, because she's nowhere to be found. I can't find her. The woman that had given me the tambourine, the large deacon, the one that, that does prophecy, the one that I had heard the younger women calling La Gordita, the fat one behind her back, she grabs me all of a sudden and she starts carrying me to the front of the room. 
and I'm terrified. I don't know what's going to happen up there. So I start kicking and I start yelling and she just turns me around and she mashes my face right into her huge bosoms and she holds my head there and I can't breathe. I can't breathe. I can't move and I can't breathe and I'm trying to struggle, but I can't breathe. And I just see this white haze in front of me and I feel like I'm losing my, my breath. I feel like I'm falling asleep. I feel my body is just like going limp. And then I seem to open my eyes somehow and I see that the haze of white is her blouse, which is opened. And with the last of my strength, I bit. I bit right through that white linen shirt, right into her Playtex living bra and into the firm, pliant flesh of her humongous smothering bosoms. I bit and I bit and I bit again until she screamed and she drops me. And she starts, and she probably dropped me on her head, which is why I'm like this now. And she says, La nana tiene un diablo. This child has a demon. And then, I, before I could even begin to get up, three other deacons come over and they grab me, one on each limb. What do they call that when, when you're drawn and quartered, you're like spread-eagled? And, and, and I'm kicking and I'm screaming and they're taking me to the pastor and he raises the bottle that smelled like the oil that my grandmother, my abuela, fried her platos in. And I don't know where she is and I'm sure that I'm going to die and I'm going to go to El Mar de Fuego, the lake of fire. And then all of a sudden... I hear my grandmother's voice, or rather the jangling of her bracelets and the smell of her perfume, tigress, as she parted the crowd coming towards me and she said, let her go, in English. She goes, she doesn't understand Spanish, she is only a child. Tu tiene diablo, you are the ones with the demons. And they dropped me, again, they just dropped me on the floor. And um, they, they step back and my grandmother picks me up she plucks a chicken feather out of my hair. I totally remember this. And the two of us walk out of the church. And one of the ladies, I remember, says to my abuela in one of the first Spanish, I remember understanding, somos a rezal a ti. We will pray for you. And my abuela said to this woman, pray for yourself. <laughs> and we never went to that church again. <laughs> and not long after that, the New York State Department of Health, acting on an anonymous tip, inspected the church and closed it down with the Rivero for being illegal. Mm. So that church was like gone. And I, well, and I never really talked about it. And, you know, that experience kind of like, I'm not going to say scarred me, but it did really influence my life in a lot of ways because Whenever I'm faced with something that I can't get out of, my, my first inclination is to fight and claw and bite my way out of it. And I've also come to realize that I really believe that hell is being separated from your loved ones the way I felt like I was separated from my abuela. And I also remember a conversation that some of the church members had. They, remember, they came to my abuela's apartment they were all speaking in English, which I thought was really strange, which now I think they wanted me to know what they were saying. And they were asking my grandmother all these questions. And my grandmother was like, who basically came to, came to New York from Puerto Rico when she was in her 20s with my mom, who was seven, went only to school to third grade and made her living, whatever living she could, by crocheting and knitting things for people. So she was there with her crocheting. And she's like, mm, mm, I don't know. Maybe. No. You know say. I don't know. And looking like the Cheshire cat. Now, I will never know if me getting my abuela thrown out of church changed her worldview. And I will never know whether or not she really did have anything to do with that. But I will never forget, and I say this myself to this day, what she told the women before they left. She said to them, you know something? I am a practicing Christian. And I am going to keep practicing until I get it right. <laughs> Thank you. Abuela! Mwah. That old black magic's got me. In its spell, that old 
magic that you weave so well Those icy fingers up and down my spine The same old witchcraft when your eyes meet mine The same old tingle that I feel inside And when that elevator starts its ride Dialing down and down I go Round and round I go Like a leaf that's caught in the tide This is Risk, this is Ella Fitzgerald behind me now And we just heard from Michelle Carlo She's at michellecarlo.com. Now, Michelle told that at a Risk live stream. The next Risk live stream is on uh, Saturday, July 25th at 9 p.m. Eastern. You get your tickets by going to risk-show.com slash tour. Now, before Michelle, we heard from Brian Joint. Brian Joint story, that was one of those three and a half minute long anecdotes. Brian's not an experienced storyteller. He's a risk listener who heard me on the podcast saying, hey, we'd like to hear your mini stories. These super short stories where you focus on just one incident or two. In his case, it was about entering a bar one night with a black friend and coming face to face with a racist bartender. So Brian emailed me at kevin at risk-show.com. He told me the idea and I gave him some coaching on how to record a version. So he sent me a recording and then I gave him some more notes on how to do a second draft and bam, within like two days, we were done. The whole process probably took Brian about 45 minutes of his time, tops. And I told him he could go buy a fake name if he preferred. I sometimes try to figure out if a, a person might be more comfortable working with one of the women on our staff or one of the people of color on our staff. I sometimes tell a person, hey, you know what? Maybe that would work as a longer story. In any case, right now, we're especially interested in anecdotes about racism and anecdotes from people who are from marginalized communities, people of color, trans people, indigenous people, people with disabilities, people struggling with poverty. We're also interested in anecdotes about activism, people out there marching in the streets or organizing politically, people in the Black Lives Matter movement or the economic justice movement. We're also looking for anecdotes from people being affected by the pandemic in the most subtle ways, or the most dramatic ways, the most unexpected ways, or funny ways. Every single person listening to this podcast right now can probably think back on a moment from the past month when you were especially caught off guard, or you found yourself especially emotional, or you keep thinking back to that moment and laughing about it, or maybe you talked about that moment in a session with your therapist. And of course, these little anecdotes, they can come from your past, too. A woman just sent one in that happens when she's about 12 years old. That's going to be on next week's episode. What if you press the pause button on your podcast player right now and spent one minute thinking, what little mini story could I tell? Go ahead, pause. Take one minute to mull that over. And remember, if you're ever interested in sharing an anecdote on the podcast in 2020 or in whatever year you're hearing me say this, please email me at kevin at risk-show.com. Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries, if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android. You are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York. Some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. 
There's romance. There's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Our next story comes to us from one of our live stream shows. I'll tell you, this one brought a tear to my eye, and so many other people said the same thing out there. These live streams are such a beautiful communal experience. Our next one is on Saturday, July 25th at 9 p.m. Eastern. This is William Mullen. We haven't had William on the show in a long time. He's been fantastic every time he's done the show. You can find William on Instagram at W. Mullen. And here he is now doing the Risk live stream with a story we call Take Me Out. So uh, this week was my father's birthday, and he was born in 1910. I kid you not. Put some context to it, he was too young to serve in World War I, but he was too old. My father was too old to serve in World War II. But the fact is, my father had me and my brother, I'm a fraternal twin, when he was in his 60s. He just decided he wanted to be extra active during retirement. And a few years after he had us, he retired a nice, wholesome, old-fashioned, traditional life in the Connecticut suburbs. And he did his gardening, and he was all around the house. And he taught my brother and I all sorts of things like growing tomato plants and selling them on the side of the road. My father, though, was very conservative in his values, his style, finances, He always tried to wear like a blazer and and always was very proper. But he was also very strict and he was a very intimidating figure because he ran the household and he was very bold and confident because he had a whole life that he had lived and now he's having another family. For instance, because of his age, he took a lot of naps and my mother always chose me to go up and wake him up from his nap to join us at the dinner table. And every day I would go up there and he would be sound asleep with earphones on listening to 1010 wins. Like you can hear through the earphones, you give us 22 minutes and we'll give you the world. And he was like listening to traffic report on the FDR and we lived a hundred miles away from New York. And I would, I would shake him And I would shake him, and he'd finally wake up. And it was such a relief because back then, I knew a little bit about his age, and I was always afraid that one time I would wake him up and he would not wake up. The thing is, he was so traditional. He loved America so much, right? America, apple pie, and baseball. He loved baseball. There was nothing better to him in the whole world than baseball. He went to all these games... And when I was growing up, he had ticket stubs from the Brooklyn Dodgers. He had ticket stubs from the New York Yankees. He actually had ticket stubs from the 1956 World Series where Don Larson pitched a no-hitter with the Brooklyn Dodgers versus the New York Yankees. Brooklyn had moved to L.A. years prior. It was like living in a museum. And when my brother and I grew old enough to actually start in our local Little League, my father jumped for joy because he'd been throwing the baseball with my brother and I and training us. And you could tell he really wanted us to be little baseball heroes. And so he jumped in and signed us up and he signed himself up as coach. And he found this other old guy who was like grumpy old men with this little league team. And he tried and tried and tried. And my brother and I hated baseball. We hated it. 
And he he kept trying. He put my brother on the pitcher's mound. He put me as catcher. My brother could not throw that ball over home plate. He couldn't find where home plate was. He kept just walking the batters around and around until they scored. He was crying on the mound. I was crying, not because I was sad. It was because I was exhausted chasing his baseballs all around the field. It was very clear we didn't like baseball, and it was disappointing to him. When we became adolescents, we notice his age more. Now, when you have like preteens or tweens, as they call them now, with normal aged parents, there is like a permanent eye roll on their face. Now, imagine if those parents were as old as your grandparents, or even sometimes people thought they were great grandparents. It was a constant state of embarrassment, especially since my father just was proudly walking around with like a Newsies cap, suspenders, whistling or humming some ditty from 1935. Like, oh my lady, oh my darling, oh my Clementine. And it couldn't be farther from the heavy metal my brother and I started being influenced by during that like late 70s, early 80s. Because that was what was the only thing that was played on Connecticut rock and roll radio. So we were pretty shy and we were very easily embarrassed now because we noticed his, his age. We just didn't want to bring attention to ourselves. For instance, we would be in the car with him and he would have to fill up the car with gas. And he would drive into the gas station and we would notice, oh, there's a gas station attendant. He was an upperclassman that we know and his name is John. I guess everyone from my father's generation calls everyone Skip. So he's like, hey, Skip, Skippy, Skipper, fill her up, Skip. Fill the tank up, Skippy. And my brother and I are like, oh, my God, Dad, his name is John. Like days later in school, John would come up and go, just tell your father my name's not Skippy. You know, it's like, all right, John, back off, big guy. So, um... My father and mother, um, usually after like baseball games or about once a week, always took us to friendlies. And we'd have a meal and they had the best ice cream. But the celebration was short-lived because my brother and I knew the embarrassment and the mortifying we would endure going to a restaurant. Because by the time we were like in the pre-teens, my father was in his 70s and he was hard of hearing. And he wore hearing aids. So the waitress would come over and say the specials, and in a loud voice, he'd go to like my brother or I and be like, Did she say chicken? Was that chicken? We're like, yes, it would God dad, it was chicken. It chicken, right? Chicken? I'm like, oh my God. Everyone's what's wrong? Is there a kerfuffle something somewhere? So my brother and I were incredibly embarrassed. And then sometimes, because my father was very frugal, he didn't get his hearing aids fixed. They would malfunction, and a high-pitched whistle would resonate through the restaurant where all the diners thought it was a fire alarm, and they would be getting up. Should we go now? Is this, is this a fire? My brother and I just... Usually, we would get a regular waitress, but sometimes a new waitress would come, and they would always, always compliment my mom and dad on their grandchildren. And that's when... My brother and I started sliding down that plastic purple booth under the table because my father would always he would always retort, grandchildren, these aren't my grandchildren, these are my boys. And he would lean into the waitress and say, I still got it if you know what I mean, darling. Oh my God, dad. It's like, stop. The poor teenage waitress is like, ew. She's like dropped the fries or something. So one night we're driving back from probably friendlies and my mother whispers in my father's ear and then gives a not so subtle wink and said, boys, your father's just going to drive you around the block for a few minutes. Have fun. Wink. And my brother and I are like, oh my God, are we in trouble? We must be in trouble. My dad backs up the car. And he slowly takes off, and he just dives right in. No intro. He says, boys, this is important. Women have a catcher's mitt. We're like, oh, my God. Is this the, is this the talk? This is, this is the talk. Oh, my God. This is like the birds and the bees. We've seen this episode on the Brady Bunch. We're only 12. 
We're only 12. Is this time? Is this the good time to do this talk? Oh, my God. And he's like, and men, men have baseball bats. And that I knew because I had one myself and I would found myself kind of attracted to other baseball bats. And I had actually gotten familiar with quite a number of other eighth graders, Louisville sluggers at that time. But I didn't know what that was. I had no idea what that was. I didn't even know if it was called sex. I just knew that I was attracted to that and it was this mysterious feeling. So my father goes, now, are you understanding this? I looked at my brother, his eyes are closed. His face is squinched up like my father's about to hit a tree. And I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm understanding. But I was thinking, well, dad's really knowledgeable about this. I'm going to ask a question. So I go, hey, hey, dad, can there be two baseball bats? Dead silence. My brother opens his eyes. He looks at me like I'm crazy. My father starts slowing the car down, much like my parents used to do during road trips when my brother and I were like roughhousing in the back seat and they threatened to punish us on the side of I-95. So I was like, oh my God, I'm in trouble. And I feared for my life. But the silence was because I threw my dad and he wasn't expecting that. He, he was just like, oh, uh, 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 no, women don't have baseball bats. They don't have baseball bats. They, 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 men have the baseball bats. And when you love a woman, you put the baseball bat into their catcher mitt. Do you, do you understand? And my brother and I are like, yes, yes. But I felt so bad that I angered my father and I upset him and I wanted to get back into his good graces. So then my father started talking about deposits. <laughs> and so I was just like, like a bank deposit? And he goes, and he smiled and he was like, yes, Billy. Yes, like a, like a bank deposit. You got it. Good for you. He finishes. We get to the end and we arrive back at the house and he opens the door and he looks at me with this bewilderment look on his face. He's not angry. He's not disappointed. It's more like, what am I going to do about this one? And I was thinking, does he know about me? Does he know what this is? Does he know that I'm different? Or does he think I'm just really slow? A few years later, we're in high school now, and I've started gravitating toward musicals instead of sports. And the irony is, it's because I discovered his original cast recording of Hello, Dolly! starring Carol Channing. And I loved that, and I played it over and over and over again, and I knew all the words, and I sang, and I wanted to be Barnaby so bad. I was just like, I'm going to be Barnaby. And my parents were like really sick of it, but I became really good. I became a good singer, and in my junior year, I was cast as one of the leads in Anything Goes. It was kind of a big deal. And we started rehearsal. At the same time, my father was diagnosed with an aortic aneurysm. And if you don't know anything about aortic aneurysms, it's kind of dangerous because it can burst at any time. And they usually do a surgery immediately. Because the risk is, if it bursts, it's a massive heart attack in front of your family. But he delayed the surgery until after the production. Because he wanted to see me. And I'll never forget the night he saw me. After the show, he looked me in the eye and he said, I'm really proud of you. And those compliments did not come frequently from him. Years later, my brother, who is straight, asked me, do you think dad knew? Do you think he knew like, that you were gay? And I said, I don't think it actually mattered. I think what mattered was he accepted and loved the son who was singing ballads instead of throwing baseballs. Mm -hmm.
that is all for this week's episode, folks. This is King Curtis behind me now, and we just heard from William Mullen telling a story at one of our Risk live stream shows. The next live stream is on July 25th. That is a uh, Saturday at 9 p.m. Eastern. That's 6 p.m. Pacific. And we have a really, really, I'm so curious uh, you know about this cast because it's such an interesting lineup of fascinating people. We have Daryl Ace Lyons is returning to the show, Sasha Lilac, Doreen Stern, and John Blesso. Very curious to hear. Like we've had some great mixes of people, of personalities, of people from very different sorts of walks of life and backgrounds. So this should be great. It's July twenty fifth. 9 p.m. Eastern. You can always get your tickets at risk-show.com slash tour. And tickets are limited, so get them ahead of time. Also, uh, you know, spread the word that we're always looking for pitches for these shows, especially from people of color. I made a little video and posted it on all my you know, socials and at the Risk Podcast fans discussion group where I outlined the five reasons that people most often give for not having pitched us a story yet and why those are not good reasons. <laughs> so check out that video. Now, I am doing something really fascinating and super fun now. I am on this new platform called Subtext. If you just go to your phone now and you text anything to the number 347-252-9616 or on your computer, just go to joinsubtext.com slash risk show. You will start getting texts from me, Kevin Allison, and you can reply to them and I'll see them and reply to you. Your texts will not be seen by everybody, but my texts that I send to everybody are. My replies to you are not seen. Anyway, this has been a fascinating way to engage with risk listeners. So come on, join us over at subtext. Again, just text anything to the number 347-252-9616 or go to joinsubtext.com slash risk show. I talk about everything behind the scenes gossip about, you know, the stories, the storytellers, the staff, tips and guidelines on storytelling, personal stuff about how I'm doing in my life. Another thing, another place you can catch me is at Cameo. If you go to cameo.com slash the Kevin Allison, I can make a little video for you or a friend saying hello, wishing you happy birthday, singing a song, doing a comedic sketch, whatever you might want. Cameo.com slash the Kevin Allison. Don't forget all of our offerings at thestorystudio.org. Listen to these three classes. Uh, just These are just three. There are so many. But there's eight ways to improve your storytelling masterclass with me, Kevin Allison, 90 minutes, Tuesday, July 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern. There's the Basics of Storytelling live online masterclass with Cindy Freeman and Brad Lawrence for, you know, beginners. Great. They are so fantastic. That's Tuesday, July 21st at 1 p.m. Eastern. And there's a two-day storytelling for business being taught by Cindy Freeman that Saturday, July 25th from 1.30 to 4 p.m. And then Sunday, uh, July 26th from 1.30 to 4 p.m. Oh, that's, I'm saying Eastern times for those. And you can find more offerings at thestorystudio.org. Remember, our Patreon is at patreon.com slash risk. And if you're more interested in helping us out with a one-time donation, go to paypal.me slash risk show and look us up on all your socials. Start talking to us. Engage with this community on all the socials. We're at risk show. Uh, we have the risk podcast fans discussion group on Facebook or the risk podcast subreddit. And on Twitter and Instagram, I'm at the Kevin Allison. If you do manage to get any vacationing done this summer in some way, 
Don't forget to bring the Risk book. You can get the Risk book wherever books are sold. It's fabulous. Or just go to theriskbook.com. And I'm sure I'm forgetting something, but I have talked quite a lot. <laughs> Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. <laughs>